come up on um, getting our budget ready for 09 that they start paying me per word that I preach. I don't think that's funny. I know I only hit one word last week. If you were here, you'll know what I'm talking about. I hit the word hour, but I think the word hour is infused with so much teaching that if we're going to really learn how to pray the Lord's Prayer, we've got to learn what, why Christ began it with the word hour. It's all about biblical fellowship. It's all about being a community. There is no I or me or my in the Lord's Prayer. It's our God and it's our Father. I think that's an That's uh, important. But who is it that we pray to? Now, have you ever stopped to consider this? Last week, if I I asked you if you've ever stopped to consider why or how significant Jesus, that it was that Jesus began with the word hour. Have you ever stopped to think about why Jesus used the title for God Father when there were dozens and dozens of titles of God available. Why did he say our father when teaching us how to pray? You know, in India, the word for father is pitta. The important thing to know, however, is that you do not call your father pitta in India, even though that is the correct word, because you always add the suffix g. Because G denotes respect and reverence. The closest parallel would be our southern states when um, they say yes sir or yes ma'am in addressing their, their father or their mother. So they would say Pitta G instead of Pitta because it always brought to mind that while I am your father, while I am your daddy, there is a station where I am above you in authority and you can't blur those lines. We're going to see that our Father in heaven does that same thing. Our Father brings us into the intimacy, into the beauty, into the relationship that we have with God. But the fact is that God is in heaven. He is above us. He is transcendent over us. But why did Jesus tell us to pray our Father? I think there's a lot of really powerful teachings in this. So yes, once again, we're going to look at just one word. I don't think we're going to do that throughout the whole sermon, throughout the whole series. But today we're going to look at this word father, because I think I can show you four at least. And believe me, I know I'm missing a bunch, but at least four great teachings about this word father in that phrase, our father. Here it is. Now, listen, I want to challenge you. Years ago. Denise and I took our children and we went camping to Hickory Run State Park. We have a pop-up camper. I don't know if there's ever been a time in camping at Hickory Run State Park where a horrific thunder and lightning storm hasn't swept through the area while we're there. And in this particular evening, the rain just started coming. It poured. It deluged. It was like the, the heavens opened up. And our camper has an awning. And the two corners of the awning are supported by these poles that you anchor to the ground with tent stakes. The rain came down so fast and so furious that I didn't have the awning angled enough that it collected a great pool of water that eventually yanked out of the ground those anchor stakes and collapsed our awning and bent our poles. Now, friends, I'm telling you that for a reason. 
This truth about God's fatherhood is an anchor for your soul. That if you don't develop it and pound it further than your mind, but into your heart, when when the storms of life come, you are going to doubt God. You're going to doubt his love. So take what I'm going to teach. I'm going to give you four truths about this word father and pound them like anchor bolts deep down into the bedrock part of your soul so that you can know that God is your father if you're in Christ and the the full teaching, the robust knowledge that that brings. Number one, here we go. If God is our father, then we are in close personal relationship with him. You heard that, right? If God is our father then we are in a close personal relationship with him. Now, let me explain. I need you to think. I need you to hear me in a way that says, I'm going to learn this morning because I'm going to teach you some information. Father, this just makes sense, is much different than the word fatherhood. A man could be a father in a paternal, paternal sense of the word, but then abandon his child. So that child doesn't experience fatherhood while that child does have a father. Or a man can raise up his children in a relationship of love and intimacy and demonstrate fatherhood. So the word father is different, much different, hugely different than the word fatherhood. It's in this sense that Jesus uses the word father. And it's in this sense that John seven times in his first letter uses the word father. The fatherhood of God, friends, was supremely dear to the Jews. Now, you've heard probably, I would imagine, a sermon on God's fatherhood. And you might have heard, because it's too common, that the Jews didn't understand the fatherhood of God. But let me tell you, to the Jew, the fatherhood of God was supremely dear. It was very, very important to them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, you are the sons of the Lord your God, In Jeremiah, I am the father, I am a father to Israel. In Deuteronomy 32, is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? You see, the Jews believed, and I quote from a rabbi, it was an honor to children to be near their father and an honor to a father to be near his children. Therefore, make a house for the father that he may be, that he may dwell near his Children, you see, the supreme notion of God's fatherhood was held high to a Jew. But in spite of this Jewish idea of the fatherhood of God, listen, they understood it mainly in terms of a sovereign creator father. Now, let me explain this. The aspect of God's character, the part of God's character, which was stressed most, did you know this? In the Old Testament, all the way through, is God's holiness. God's holy, he's separate, he's set apart from all of creation. Over and over, the people of God had to learn to keep their place, maintain their distance from their holy God. That was all through and infused in the Old Testament. Pray for me, I'm losing my voice. God is referred to as Father 14 times in the Old Testament. Now, I'm giving you a lot of information. I'm going to draw it all home for you in a minute. But every one of those 14 times that the fatherhood of God is mentioned, it's mentioned impersonally 
always that God is the father of Israel or a nation, not individuals, not persons. In fact, listen, not one individual spoke of God as his personal heavenly father. So here I've taught you something already, if you haven't noticed, that God as father was supremely held by the Jews, but they learned it, they understood it, they maintained that belief in the fatherhood of God as an impersonal father to the nation, not a father to the individual. Now listen, by the time of Christ, the Jews so focused on the sovereignty and transcendence of God, that means that God is above all, and they would not even repeat his covenant name. Now you know that. The Yahweh is God's covenantal name. They wouldn't repeat that, so they created the word Jehovah, which combines two separate names for God, in order to guard that distance between God and man. So let's never write, let's never say the name Yahweh because we might violate that name and render it unholy. So let's not write it or say it. Let's create Jehovah so that we will never be guilty of profaning his name. But Jesus infused God's title of father with new meaning. He used it more than 60 times in the Gospels. And while the Old Testament, remember what I told you, it emphasizes holiness? Listen, the New Testament stresses the fatherhood of God. You want to know the great theme of the Old Testament is God is holy. The great theme of the New Testament is God is our Father. He's not less holy than he was in the Old Testament for his character, his nature never changes. He's not less holy because his holiness is inherent all through the New Testament. But listen, the stress of the New Testament is on the boldness and on the confidence that we can approach God through Jesus and make our way into the Father's presence. That's what Ephesians says. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. He is God our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In other words, we can come to the Father, friends, through Christ, boldly, confidently. Now, here's the interesting part, ready? And then we're going to really get rolling. This is just sort of a prelude. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Did you know that? And the Aramaic word for father is Abba. It was a common word the children used of their earthly fathers. It means daddy, but it has a more reverent touch to it. The best way to translate Abba is probably dearest father. This was revolutionary, friends. I'm trying to help you understand that to the ears of the Jews, when Jesus prayed our father and used the word Abba, it was absolutely revolutionary to every Jew that would ever hear that because no Jew ever used Abba in relation to God. Jeremiah wrote, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him. He gives them a share in his sonship and empowers them as his disciples to speak with their heavenly father in just such a familiar, trusting way as a child would with his father. Friends, this knowledge of this special relationship with God, our Abba, Father, dearest Father, is to undergird, listen, every single prayer. 
Now we're going to really get rolling. That was just point number one. There's a lot more. Number two, what do we learn? What do we unpack from this word father? If God is our father, then we are loved by him. Friends, listen, do you have a theological smite button? Look on the screen behind me and you'll know what I'm talking about. People have this. It's always a concern of mine when speaking on the fatherhood of God that some whose earthly fathers, now listen, some whose earthly fathers are or were poor examples of fatherhood are going to be bothered by this title for God. It evokes in their minds when I mention the fatherhood of God, this terrible image of their earthly father, overly harsh, distant, unloving human fathers. Friends, listen, they create barriers to understanding the glory and the freeing knowledge of having a heavenly father. There are many who view God as harsh, joyless, distant, always ready to punish at the slightest provocation of disobedience or failure. In fact, listen, a true story. There was a Spanish father who had a son that became estranged from him. The son ran away and the father set off to find him. This is a true story. He searched for months to no avail. And finally, in a last desperate effort to find this boy, the father put an ad in a Madrid newspaper. The ad read this, quote, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Now listen to this. On Saturday... 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their fathers. This concern that I have, and many people have, in preaching on the fatherhood of God, that our earthly fathers have represented him poorly, has moved some, now listen, has moved some to completely amputate the teaching of the fatherhood of God from their their ministry. In fact, in Honest to God, a book written by Bishop Robinson, listen to this, he was hailed as brilliant because not once in the book did he ever mention or talk about the fatherhood of God because he was writing to a generation of people whose families had broken down. He thought this was brilliant and he was hailed as brilliant. I'm telling you, that is a terrible and it's a horrible overreaction. We need now more than ever right teaching, clear and passionate preaching of the fatherhood of God to renew the minds of those who've been hurt by their earthly fathers. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear or reverence him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Friends, did you know, and I'm going to tell you an astounding truth that at first you might think I've lost my my mind. Did you know that the word of God tells you, oh person in Christ, that he loves you, God loves you no less, listen, no less than he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. John 17, the glory that you have given me, Jesus is praying, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, listen, and loved them 
even as you love me. That phrase, even as, in the Greek, means to the same degree that. So John writes that Jesus said that God loves us to the same degree as he loves his son. Now listen, I don't know what your filter in your mind is doing. You all have one, and I have one too. And it takes the word of God's truth, and it begins to do things to it. And sometimes your filter filters out the power of redemptive knowledge. And sometimes it lets it into your mind and down into your heart where transformation occurs. So I don't know what's happening in your filter, but the fact is that God loves you if you're in Christ to the same degree that he loves his son. What's that say about your relationship with your heavenly father? The love of God has an unbreakable grip for nothing in all creation, Romans 8 says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John says in, in the first epistle, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Jerry Bridge is one of my favorite authors, paraphrases this verse. Look at it up on the screen while I tell you what he wrote. He says, stop. Consider this astonishing fact that God loves us so much that we are called his children. And it's true. We really are his children. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but I've pounded two anchors into your mind. It's your job to make sure they get down to your heart. Number one, God wants and we have a close personal relationship with him available for us through Christ. That's what he wants. That's what the word father means. But number two, God loves you to the same degree that he loves his son, Jesus. But we're not done yet. If God, number three, is our father, then we are adopted as his sons and daughters. If God is our father, we are adopted as his children. You know what J.I. Packer wrote on this? I really find this fascinating. He wrote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. You see, in the ancient world, friends, adoption is much different than it is today. It was ordinarily confined to only the wealthy, childless couples. And those who were adopted were not infants or young children. They were adopted as young adults. It is by nature an act of choice. It's not compulsion. It's an expression of free love. That's just what adoption is. God adopts because he chooses to, not because he's bound to, out of some duty. Now listen, drive this into your soul. You ready? The truth that we are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters, now listen, is the highest privilege and blessing that the gospel affords. Did you hear that? 
Now, I'm going to say it again because I know it's hot in here. I know it's hard to hold on to these thoughts. What I'm saying is this. There is no higher blessing and privilege in all of Scripture, in all of the gospel, than the fact that God has adopted you as his child. Bar none. You might be thinking, well, what about justification? Justification is God's forgiveness of our sins and restoring us to peace with him through Christ. Isn't that the highest privilege of the gospel? Let me tell you, justification is the most fundamental. It's the most primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our deepest need, peace with God. But it does not imply, listen, just because your sins are, are taken away, just because you have peace with God again, does not mean that you have a, a closeness and intimacy and affection and a generosity in your heart towards God. Adoption means that God loves us in that way and we return it because he's our father. One person argued that the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of adoption. Listen, our father always desires the company of his children. Our father is always accessible to his children. Our father is never too preoccupied to listen to his children. Our father loves to outgive all of his children's expectations. Our father always knows what is best for his children. You see, the children of God want to imitate their father. They want to glorify their father. The children of God want to please their father. All of this is captured in this doctrine of adoption. Let me drive this home a little more. You ready? And this is cool. There's two yardsticks given in the New Testament by which we can measure God's love. You ready? Here's one. It's the one we all know. It's the cross. The cross is the way that we can measure God's love. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on that wretched, cursed cross to take our sins and give us righteousness and bring us into the family of God. Now, here is yardstick number two, 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love. Behold, look what kind of love the Father has given to us. And here's adoption that we should be called children of God. Friends, it's one of two yardsticks that the Bible holds out there to say, go ahead and try to measure how much love God has for you. He's adopted you. It's popular to say today that we're all God's children. I hear that. But is that really true? Friends, not all people have the right to call God Abba. Only the one who has put his faith in Christ can claim God as his dearest father. Galatians 3 teaches us that. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. If you're a son of God, it's only because of Christ. If you haven't come to Christ, you're not a son of God. We only become the children of God through what the Bible calls adoption. The Bible is crystal clear, friends. Nobody likes to hear this. I understand that. But I'm going to give you four quotations from the scriptures to tell you which family every human being is born into. Here it is. The Bible says in Romans, we're born into the children of the flesh. 
We're born into the children of wrath in Ephesians. We're born into the children of the devil in 1 John 3. We're born into the children of the slave in Galatians. Friends, that's the family that everyone is born into. Adoption is the teaching that God has taken us out of that family and brought us into his family and we become the children of God. John 1 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The adoption theology, the teaching of adoption, makes fear move us to cry, Dearest Father. I'm going to illustrate this for you. Recently, we've adopted a dog that we name Rusty. This has been a curse on the family, at least in my view. Our little two-and-a-half-year-old boy, Andrew, comes to about the same height as Rusty's head. As gentle as this dog is, I really think he sees Andrew as a three-foot-high lollipop. And during one particular licking, Andrew and Rusty are in the kitchen. I'm over in the front room out of sight. And when all of a sudden, Andrew starts yelling out, Dada, Dada. The dog was licking him, and he was getting scared. See, friends, listen, Romans 8, here it is again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What this means is when situations occur, when circumstances come, and they provoke fear into us, we know that we are the children of God. We know that God lavished his love on us. We know that God wants to be our father in a close personal relationship. And there's a spirit in you, and there's a spirit in me if you're in Christ that moves us to cry out, Abba, Father, come, rescue. You see this in Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows, I'm going to tell you a little background on sparrows, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, therefore, you are a more value than sparrows. This is the teaching of adoption from Christ's own lips. You see, sparrows were cheap birds. You go to the marketplace, all you need is the coin that was the lowest value coin in existence at the time of Christ, one penny, and you give it to the market, market owner, and he'll give you two sparrows. But you know what? In Luke 12, 6, Jesus says that five sparrows were worth two pennies. You know what that means? You go to the marketplace and you give them a penny, and then he says, if you give me another penny, I'll throw in a free bird. They were worthless sparrows. They had no value. Four for, two for a penny or five for two. You know what they were for? Sparrows were finger foods. You roasted them and you ate them as appetizers. How significant was a sparrow, but yet Jesus tells us that God knows even when one of those birds fall to the ground. So how priceless in comparison is the father's knowledge and care for his children. Friends, that's the teaching of adoption. 
So what have we learned? I've given you three anchor bolts. One of them is that God longs, God loves to be in a close family relationship with you. He's your father. He's your dearest father if you're in Christ. Number two, God loves you with the same love to the same degree that he's bestowed on his own son, Jesus. And number three, God has adopted you out of his own free choice and brought you out of a family that was leading to destruction to a family where you're a child of God. But there's one more point I'm going to teach you this morning. If God is our father, then we are his heirs. If God is your father, then we are his heirs. In the Roman culture, I told you that adoption happened when wealthy, childless families adopt a young man or a young woman. But when they adopted a young man, they did so because they wanted somebody, now listen, they wanted somebody to carry on their family name and to become the inheritor. Romans 8 speaks to this. As Paul is writing to Rome, you see, to the Jew, the eldest son gained the lion's share of the inheritance, two-thirds. But in Rome, that wasn't the same case. And the Spirit himself bears witness, he says in Romans 8, with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friends, the unsaved person cannot claim and will not receive an inheritance from God. It's exclusively a right for sons and daughters of God. When a brand new believer comes into the family of God, she does so with the full rights of an adult daughter of God. That's why the Romans adopted adult young adults so that they were already into adulthood and could receive their inheritance if they died. Now, you're ready? I'm going to tell you something. I told you one thing before that you thought I was going to be in heresy if I didn't show you. It was that God loves us to the same degree that he loves his son. That's clearly in scripture. Here's the second point. We are going to inherit, those of us in Christ, the same inheritance, no less than Jesus himself. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we should be like him because we will see him as he is. That's just one teaching on this inheritance that we're going to be one day remade physically in our resurrected bodies to be like Jesus. There are weights, friends, for the children of God, the surpassing glory and grandeur of our inheritance. One day, we're going to enjoy, we're going to experience the, the heavenly life blessings that now, right now, are enjoyed by our elder brother, Jesus. You know Jesus is called our elder brother, right? That's why we're co-heirs with him. And the Holy Spirit, this is the coolest thing. You go to Ephesians 1, and you'll find that the Holy Spirit is God's down payment or deposit that guarantees this very inheritance that is coming our way. You have the spirit of God inside of you. That's a foretaste of the beauty of your inheritance. There is so much more that could and should be said about our heavenly father. What confidence, what assurance, what boldness, what encouragement we have as the children of God when we pray to our father in heaven. I want you to think for a moment. When you go into prayer, 
with your heavenly Father, who now you know that the Bible says he loves you to the same degree as he loves his son. The Bible says now you know, because it's an anchor bolt, that he wants you to pray. He wants you to be close. He wants an intimate relationship with you. Now you know that he's adopted you. He didn't have to. He chose you, and he brought you into his family because he loves you. And now you know that he can't wait. He can't wait to give you his full inheritance. And right now you get a taste of it through the Spirit. How awesome it is to pray knowing that about your Father. We have a relationship with our Father that is unlike any other religion bar none. We have a God who loves us as a Father and has chosen to adopt us into His family and bless us and granted us an incredible inheritance. Friends, if you are a child of God, you pray to one who longs for you to know the power and the extent of his fatherly love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for teaching us to pray in this way. Lord, for the word of God to fill out what we know about the word father as it's applied to God. Lord, that you long, you desire to be in a close relationship. The Jews didn't know that. They didn't understand that. They could never say Abba to God. They maintained and protected that distance, but Jesus, you obliterated that distance in one word, Abba, dearest Father. God longs to be in a close personal relationship with us. He longs to lavish us with his love, the same love to the same degree that he has for his own son, Jesus. He's delighted, Lord, in choosing. Thank you for teaching us, Father, that you delight in choosing us and adopting us and giving us the full rights of a child of yours, Lord, and bring us into your family. Lord, you chose that. You didn't have to do that. You chose it because you wanted to. And Lord, for making us a co-heir with our elder brother, Jesus. Lord, we have the same inheritance as Jesus. And Lord, there's a guarantee of it. Lord, we have a taste of it now. We have a huge taste in the Spirit of God, but that's just a foretaste of what this inheritance is going to be one day in heaven. Lord, thank you for all of these teachings. Lord, may they serve as anchors for our souls, Lord, that we would go through life and come to you and pray knowing this about you as our Heavenly Father, Lord, knowing, Lord, how much you care for us, the power and the extent of your love. And in Jesus' name, amen.